Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Our guest on Carolina Newsmakers this week is Steve Lawler. He is the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association after a a career that includes a number of assignments throughout the area. Steve, uh, you're a native of Greenville, as we said, a graduate of the Citadel um, and uh, Georgia Southern University as far as your MBA. How did you get interested in healthcare? How, what was the thing that uh, that uh, drew you to get uh, this as a career? Um, well, uh, so my uh, both my parents were uh, um, educators at ECU. You know, my 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 dad was an English teacher, and my mother was a nurse. So she worked at the, the nursing school at uh, at ECU, and, and before she joined the faculty, she was a public health nurse. So she had uh, a list of uh, clients that you would go visit their homes and make sure that, uh, you know, they had uh, not only um, checkups, but, you know, they also had um, a list of resources that were available to help them. So, you know, that, you know, kind of really got me interested in healthcare is this idea that uh, you can be part of an, an industry you know, even though it's really complex and sometimes it's hard to understand, um, it's an industry whose sole purpose is to uh, to help people. So, you know, I was fortunate enough after I graduated from the Citadel to get commissioned and then branched as a medical service corps officer. So, essentially, a healthcare administrator in, in the army. So, I had the the opportunity to command medical units, and I worked for the Surgeon General for a little bit, and. Uh, met some really, you know, fine people that I've uh, maintained lifelong friendships with. I suspect that uh, being uh, an association that represents both the larger and the community hospitals, you have sort of a a dual responsibility there because there's quite a lot of difference between the larger medical centers and the community hospitals. Tell us a little bit about how you navigate that. How do you uh, cover the best interest of both? Well, I think that's a great question. Uh, So uh, first of all, I've had the privilege of of leading both kinds of hospitals. I've led a small community hospital and had the the privilege of of working in in Bertie County. I've also run a thousand bed medical center in Greenville. So I think having that experience has helped me, you know, have conversations with, uh, you know, our largest systems and our smallest hospitals. Um, I think as we have those conversations, I think we like to focus on the common denominator. And, and that common denominator is how do we work together and what resources and support do you need from the association to help you best take care of patients? Um, and it's different based on size. We have large systems that, that are nation leading and we have medical centers that uh, are some of the best teaching hospitals in the country. And, you know, they have, you know, needs and, and wants that uh, are, are different because they've got a sophisticated level of infrastructure, but they still need people to tell their story. They still need people to help them elevate their brand and reputation. Um, they still need help comparing themselves to others to see how they're doing. And they need a voice on Jones Street in Washington that we help provide. For our smaller members, our smaller hospitals, you know, they, they have a different set of needs because they, they may not have the resources that are available. So in many cases, we act as a convener um, and as a 
collaborator to bring them together to create a little scale. So, um, you know, you can drive savings where, you know, you're, you're not buying only for yourself, you're buying as a, a, a collective or a group. And that has, um, you know, significant financial advantage in regards to you know, driving down the cost of uh, supplies and, uh, and, and medical equipment. You know, we also uh, provide, uh, you know, advocacy and support for them, uh, as well as, you know, we help them, you know, recruit staff or we help them find uh, uh, temporary staff when they have a shortage. So I think going into those conversations, knowing that, you know, that everyone needs something and um, yes, that's something maybe dependent on size, scope and scale. Um, and for us, you know, we use relationships as the currency that we spend to kind of figure that out. Now, we have both for-profit hospitals and non-profit hospitals, uh, yet both of them seem to charge about, uh, have the same charges and that sort of thing, or generally speaking, close. Uh, tell us the difference of that, and how does a profit a hospital uh, for-profit operate uh, in a different way than a nonprofit hospital? Well, I, I think, yeah, and that's a good question. I think first and foremost, uh, you know, I think people can be um, confident in knowing that their, their, their local hospital, regardless of whether or not it's for-profit or not-for-profit, is there to take care of them and, and serve them. Um, from a rate perspective, you know, each individual hospital um, or system negotiates with Blue Cross Blue Shield or United or Cigna or whomever um, those rates. And in many cases, uh, you know, hospitals are rate takers. So um, in many instances, you know, these, these large insurance companies are the ones that, uh, you know, have all the leverage when they're negotiating rates. Um, so there's typically not a difference between a for-profit or a not-for-profit in how a rate uh, is is negotiated. Um, and I think the big difference between those two is, is you know, our not-for-profit hospitals, you know, are operating for, you know, the benefit of community. So any retained earnings are going back into the community to invest in in people, technology, and programs and services, you know, for-profit entities, even though those things are important, they also have to provide some kind of return for investors. So um, I think that's the big difference. Uh, in North Carolina, um, all of our hospitals, I think, do a fine job working together to make sure people have what they need. I think the pandemic was a great example of where, you know, individual hospitals were, you know, reaching across competitive lines and sharing people and information and supplies in a way that we've never seen before. So where does the University uh, of North Carolina hospital system fit in this? Because uh, that uh, uh, some of the teaching hospitals do a lot of research, like at Duke and Chapel Hill, and I suspect also in Winston-Salem, uh, the teaching hospitals, uh, have a sort of a different function and also do a considerable amount of research. Where does this fit in? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're, we're extraordinarily fortunate in North Carolina to have some of the nation's leading research and teaching hospitals. Um, you know, those hospitals that you named are, uh, um, 
you know, usually in the top 10 list, you know, as well as uh, ECU and, and Biden. ECU and Biden have a national reputation for producing primary care physicians. And, you know, we certainly need more of those in North Carolina. Um, I, I think they play an important role in regards to, uh, um, you know, translational research. And what I mean there is, you know, looking at a problem and coming up with a practical solution that actually can be applied in the patient care setting to help accelerate uh, patient care and patient recovery. So, you know, many of our teaching hospitals and medical schools, I think are these practical incubators for good ideas. And then they use their clinical platform to see whether that, that good idea works. And then they work together to scale them. So, um, you know, we're, you know, we're extraordinarily fortunate to have just, you know, folks that are not only producing great physicians, and we produce thousands of physicians every year here in North Carolina, but, you know, we're also producing medical breakthrough um, that is impacting the lives of uh, people throughout the globe. And you can't overlook the economic benefit because a lot of federal grants come in. And uh, we must also mention not only that the grants come to schools like Chapel Hill and Duke, but also NC State is do, uh, has a number of programs that involve uh, programs that affect the research that's being done at Chapel Hill and Duke. Oh yeah, it's surprising how many uh, how many medical centers, to include Wake Med and others, have a great relationship with the Centennial Campus at NC State, where they're working together. Um, you know, School of Textile, looking for ways to impregnate uh, textiles with uh, um, you know material that prevent uh, the spread of uh, bacteria or virus. So you know, really some important things. I, I do think it's important to note that. Um, even though with all this great teaching going on and uh, research, um, you know, they're, they're not getting paid anymore um, in regards to uh, reimbursement for clinical services than anyone else as a teaching hospital. So, you know, that's really kind of a mission driven service to the state type of uh, type of work that, uh, as you said, gets funded through grants. Um, sometimes it's funded through patents. Um, but, you know, it's also funded through tuition and uh, through uh, philanthropy. So, um, well, there's a lot of moving parts to go in there that make it work. It's certainly a blessing to have all this. And, of course, I guess we would be totally remiss if we didn't also mention the function of the community college system in providing additional healthcare workers, especially in the nursing area. Uh, I mean, they are the cornerstone for healthcare workforce in the state. Um, and, you know, they do an exceptional job providing, you know, ADN trained nurses. So they're, they're registered nurses. They do a yeoman's job producing uh, medical technologists and x-ray technicians, et cetera. So, you know, especially in, in rural communities, I mean, they are, you know, that uh, talent pipeline that allows those hospitals to continue to function. Doctors like to practice near hospitals because it's of great assistance to them, lab work and things of this nature. And if they have to uh, put a, a patient in the hospital, they can visit them. This puts a strain on the smaller communities, like you mentioned, for example, Bertie County and so forth. How, how do you incentivize a doctor to go to an underserved area? What, how do we solve that problem? 
Well, that's a great question. So, you know, what we've seen in small communities is, is the hospital um, has uh, moved to hire physicians. So the days of independent practitioners in a small hospital, kind of like Marcus Welby, I mean, those days are, are long gone. So in many cases, hosp- small communities, hospitals will, will hire their medical staff to make sure that they're in the community and have the support structure they need to succeed. The other thing they do is uh, um, there's been an increase in, in the number of hospitals. In fact, almost every hospital in the state offers this now where there's a, a team approach to taking care of patients where private practitioners that are practicing in the community have a partner, a member of their extended team called a hospitalist that are taking care of patients in the hospital. They're physicians that are specialized in taking care of inpatient care. And that's freed up some of the time of community physicians, not to have to go to the hospital every five seconds or run over to the ED. So it's allowed them to focus on their practice and access to care. And it's improved their quality of life because they're not trying to juggle a hospital practice and their community practice. Well, that's important. And, uh, because again, manpower is uh, short in some areas and long in others and spreading it out and getting it distributed uh, wisely is, is I'm sure a real challenge, especially in a state like North Carolina where we have some very isolated areas. Well, uh, we were gonna have one final segment with Steve and when we do, I wanna get back and talk a little bit about emergency rooms and how we are involving drug stores now in, in a sort of a different way to provide health care and how this is affecting hospitals and health care. Steve Lawler, our guest, is president, CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association, formerly the North Carolina Hospital Association. And we'll do all of that when we return right after these messages. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100 and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Steve Lawler. He's the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association. And of course, this is a topic that is of interest to everyone because we're all concerned about our health care. 
We've talked early in the program about the effect of COVID-19 on hospitals and how we have wondered uh, how we have made it through that period of time to a point where we feel fairly comfortable. Um, and we've talked about the role of the university hospitals, the difference between larger and community hospitals, and a number of things, profit and nonprofit hospitals. So it's been a really interesting program. Steve, I want to turn now to the fact that uh, uh, for the last several years, uh, maybe a decade or so, we were very concerned about how emergency rooms were being used because emergency rooms were often being used not just for um, emergencies, but rather for routine uh, health care for individuals that had nowhere else to go. Has that situation improved? Are we getting it to back to where the emergency room is truly for emergencies? Um, well, well, I mean, I would say that, uh, that, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we saw emergency room utilization drop off. And it's not necessarily because people were going to a primary care physician or choosing a more appropriate uh, location for care. It's just, you know, individuals were hunkered down and uh, in many cases were hesitant to go to a hospital just because they thought, you know, there's COVID patients there, so therefore um, it's not a safe place. I mean, hospitals are, are the safest place in the state to go for care. That said, um, you know, we continue to see, um, you know, trends where individuals are, using you know, uh, emergency departments as their destination for care. I think one of the, the greatest crises we're seeing within emergency departments deals with our current behavioral health situation in North Carolina. We've got a behavioral health system that's broken and it is putting law enforcement, hospitals, emergency departments, and others uh, in an extraordinarily difficult position because it just takes an already busy emergency department and it complicates what goes on because these are individuals who need long-term care and, and there's nowhere for them to go. So, um, you know, so one of the things we believe is really important is, is working, you know, with our senior elected officials with um, Senator Berger and Speaker Moore and the governor to, uh, to look for solutions on this. And that in itself is going to help uh, decompress emergency rooms. It's gonna make our lo local law enforcement much happier. And it's gonna help uh, our neighbors and brothers and sisters um, live better lives. Um, in regards to choosing the emergency department for care, you know, we, we, you know we've got uh, an access problem, which in some cases is caused by, you know, just uh, the number of resources and people in rural areas. We talked about that. Um, but also, you know, individuals with health care coverage, since they don't have a primary care physician, typically, uh, you know, they're choosing the ED as their destination for care. And that that's not the most uh, effective place and certainly the not the most cost effective place. So I, I think there are two things from a policy perspective that our friends in the General Assembly can help us with. One is expanding access and coverage to people without uh, healthcare coverage, so closing the coverage gap. The other is helping to work with us to fix the behavioral health um, crisis in the state. More and more uh, healthcare seems to be coming from uh, the use of pharmacists at, at drugstores. For example, in COVID-19, you can get your 
your shots there. You can get flu shots there and so forth. Um, do you see a further expansion of this type of service? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, people today are better consumers. Um, certainly young people are. I mean, they're, you know, they're on the Internet figuring out, uh, you know, what's the next deal on Amazon Prime Day. Um, so I think as, as individuals become better consumers and understand um, where to access care, I think we're going to see more and more of that. And in many cases, it's generational. Um, so people like me or my folks or people <clears throat> that are in my yearbook, um, you know, they traditionally have had a relationship with a physician or a relationship with a health system to access their healthcare needs. I mean, younger people are much more transactional. So they're going to go to a destination that gets them what they need when they need it. So I do think that the market will adapt to, uh, to provide access points for, you know, those individuals who like that transactional here and now approach to care versus a relationship-based approach that, uh, you know, either people with chronic problems or older, an older generation would prefer. Well, we talked earlier about telemedicine and telehealth being a, a boom for the underserved areas, but it can work equally well in a metropolitan area because oh, yeah. it's so much easier to go online uh, than it is to uh, uh, go visit a doctor. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. And, uh, you know, we've, we've seen lots of our hospitals and health systems uh, offer to their patients uh, a mobile app where you can just go in there, click on your app. You can see your favorite uh, physician's assistant or nurse practitioner or somebody else pop up. They ask you some questions. They may uh, ask you to, you know, take a picture of your rash or um, describe your, your problems, and then they'll call in a prescription at a local pharmacy. So, um, you know, great utility for, you know, for folks that are busy um, and, and that have confidence that uh, their current um, non-emergent medical condition can be treated um, you know, over the, uh, the phone. It's no different than, you know, as, as, and as you said, uh, we've adapted from a business perspective from in-person meetings to Zoom. So if, if people are comfortable there, they're certainly comfortable talking to uh, a provider to help them diagnose a problem uh, over the uh, airways. You know, it's interesting. I have an iWatch and I, you know, I can do an EKG on my iWatch now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's not quite as thorough as another one, but it certainly gives you a good indication. That's just a, another example of how technology is extending and making uh, better health care available. Okay. Right. So there's always legislation, both on the federal level and the state level, that I'm sure is going to affect our health care. What should we as consumers be concerned about right now? Yeah, so I would say the legislation that, you know, we're watching, uh, and I'll start in Washington and, and make our way south on I-95 and get to Raleigh. Um, so in Washington, we're, you know, we're looking at the Infrastructure Act. Um, you know, we do believe that, uh, you know, that there's a need for investment uh, in infrastructure. And we think about this in, in maybe two tiers. So tier one is just shoring up and strengthening public health and hospitals to make sure that we're well positioned to deal with the pandemic and any other 
um, disaster in, in the future. Um, there's, there has not been, you know, any additional funding um, to prepare for any of these things. And uh, I think what we've learned over the past 18 months is that, uh, you know, having a well-resourced and prepared organizations make a difference. So I think that's tier one of that. You know, tier two um, is looking at, um, I like to think about it as, as looking at healthcare infrastructure and helping small community hospitals reinvent themselves. I mean, these are hospitals that were built uh, in the 50s. And, you know, over the years, I mean, they've just continued to put a, a, a coat of paint and, and uh, some new siding on the building and uh, as part of a renovation. So I do think that uh, the Infrastructure Act can go help uh, support community hospitals redesign and rebuild themselves to modernize their facilities so it, it makes it more patient-friendly and user-friendly. At the state level, um, you know, there's a variety of, of bills that we're currently looking at that we think are meaningful. So there's a bill on telehealth and whether or not we're actually applying lessons learned throughout the pandemic in a way that it becomes, you know, usual and standard practice and that it's actually paid for. Um, so right now, not all aspects of telehealth are paid for. Um, and we believe that uh, there should be payment parity for telehealth so that we're able to invest in technology and people to deliver telehealth to small communities. Um, Medicaid expansion is always on the table. Um, again, you know, we support a bipartisan approach. Um, you know, we don't think that, uh, that it's very helpful getting into a, uh, a wrestling match um, you know, over expansion, you know, we ask that, uh, again, uh, our elected officials get together and uh, work together to come up with uh, a solution to expand coverage to half a million people. Um, you know, there's currently uh, legislation dealing with certificate of need. And, and in North Carolina, we believe the certificate of need laws, which uh, set uh, parameters for high-end um, medical equipment, hospital beds, et cetera. Uh, we believe those are important, especially to small and rural communities because the, um, the elected procedures and the non-essential procedures that are different than acute care admissions, those are the business lines that individuals or organizations that want to do away with CON want to compete for. And um, those who want to compete don't, don't have the moral obligation to take care of everyone. They don't have the responsibility to run emergency departments 24-7. So we think the certificate of need law is important. Um, it certainly needs to continue to be modernized and improved over time. Um, but it is, uh, it, it is critical for, for small communities to help support hospitals and, and prevent, uh, you know, those who are interested in you know, profiting from those high-end services from coming in and, and, and peeling them away. So uh, if you were to wake up at, uh, I don't know, 3 a.m. in the morning, tomorrow morning, and uh, suddenly you realize there's something on your mind, uh, what would be your biggest concern right now? What is something that just worries you and concerns you and thinks, and you think it needs immediate action right now in the area of the hospitals of North Carolina. Yeah, so I, I would say that uh, immediate, the two things that I think are, are essential is one, fixing the behavioral health issue for, for our neighbors and friends 
and North Carolina. Second, I think, is Medicaid expansion. Um, and, you know, all of those tie to the hospitals and health systems and other people working together to improve equity of care and reduce, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the barriers that, uh, you know, some of our neighbors and friends in smaller communities have had to good care for years. So there's, I think those are the things that, you know, if I could just say, let's, let's move on something to make things better. I think those are the, the three things. Steve, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and background and uh, inf- information about the, the state of the hospitals in the state of North Carolina and healthcare. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he reminds me to remind you that if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. Also, for those who are listening to the half-hour version, two more segments are also available. So until we meet again next week on the same group of stations, I hope you and yours have a very good week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.